to another episode of Buzzwords and Music. Today, I am really privileged to have as my guest, guitarist, composer, man of many hats, Mike Miller, who has been the guitarist for not only himself and his new album that we'll get into, but he's played with Chick Corea, Boss Gags, Queen Latifah, Bette Midler. I don't think I can name anybody he hasn't toured or played with. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, first of all, welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Buzz. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. And where, where are you at currently? In L.A.? I'm in Los Angeles, and it's raining. It's so nice, man. Oh, that doesn't happen, does it? Like six times a year. Yeah. It's coming down, and I'm loving it. Well, we have a nice sunny day here in Atlanta, so we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about you. And yeah, I got to tell you, you know, this morning... I was listening to your your new record, Trust, and was really knocked out on a lot of different levels. Thank you. You know, with so many albums, you can typically tell who the leader of the session was. You know, if you don't know anything about the album, you're listening and you go, oh, that's, that's a horn player's record or that's a bass player's record. Mm -hmm. And I never got quite that sense that, okay, this is a guitar album because it's not just a collection of songs. It's more compositional. There's threads that run through everything, but the music itself isn't just a showcase for everybody's playing. That was what I was aiming at, so I'm glad you said that because uh, I, I really I've played a lot of different kinds of music in my life, and the format where you start off with the weird vamp and then you play the oddball head and then you go completely crazy and then you play the oddball head and you go out with the weird vamp. Right. And then do the same thing in the next song. That just like hasn't done it for me for a long time. And this the music I admire has that kind of developmental, like when the whole band moves. Yes. There's the parade of soloist approach, and then there's when the whole ensemble moves. Yeah. That's really moving. That's the main thing I was picking up on this. It's like, yes, you have incredible musicians on the record. Oh, yeah. We'll get into some of those. And yes, they do take solos, but the music develops underneath their solo. It's not just, here's a bed for you to show off. It's, here's a bed for you to interact with. Well, I love the idea that there's structure. Yes. Structure you can operate in, like you said, and it's not just a bed to go show the stuff you've been working on in the garage all week. Yeah. But composition is really the focus. I love that approach of like what really drew me into playing music in the first place was songs. And so as th things went on and I went through phases of what I needed to work on. Sure. It became like really important about like, okay, this song I'm going to play, what's it about? What is the mood of this thing? How can I make this song even more what it, of what it is mm. and put my own, like I said, the, the stuff I've been working on all week, put that aside and what's really appropriate for this song. I love that the musicians that I admire who do that, that their own playing is kind of secondary. It's great if you can use it, but don't be cramming your speed metal stuff in a country Western song. Yes. Because you're going to ruin the song. <laughs> You'll never get called again. And it's just, it's not a good idea. You've obviously been a musical chameleon your entire life, because just looking at the different people you've played with, you know, I mentioned Chick Corea, and then there's Queen Latifah. I love variety. I just, I always have. 
I've always liked when I put stuff on to listen to at home, it's like, you know, Hendrix and Patsy Cline yeah. and Prokopiev. And, you know, I love the variety. The common theme it has is it's music. Yeah. I always look at music as if it's done well and it's done with integrity. Yeah. That's what's going to attract me to it. Me too. And does it move me? Yeah. You know, it's like, that's really the bottom line. It's like, if it, if it moves me, then you can, I don't care what label anybody puts on it. It's, it's like when I go to a movie, I don't want to know anything about it. Yeah. Or if I go to see a painting, if you were going to go see the Mona Lisa and someone tells you, yeah, it's this lady and she's very <laughs> dressed and she's got this weird smile. You just ruined the painting for me. Yeah. I was supposed to, you know, experience it. And yeah. And what is my, my gut, my real reaction, my own reaction. Yeah. With your record, since I've, I've only gone through the one listening so far, the first listening, I always see, how does this music just affect me? I'm not looking at analyzing things. I just want that emotional impact from it. That's me. The analyzation part comes later. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, man, I really like that song. What is he doing there right. that makes this so unique? Right. That's great. Yeah, I think it's like really songs is what drew me into playing in the first place. So the idea that like in the last uh, eight years or so, I've been working with Boss Skaggs, who I already had all his music in my computer before I got the game. Yeah. There was some fine tuning and some parts to learn. But the idea of now that it's about a very sonically based gig. Mm. It's like I've done things where you where it's all about nailing the line, playing the Zappa music with the alumni groups or right. Yeah. Chick would have these figures and these these <laughs> these strange, you know. Oh, yeah. Tonal tunnels you had to find your way through. Yeah. And, uh, and I love that, too. But the idea of going back to the songs is really, it's great because it's all about sonically. What guitar was played on this? How hard did he hit the strings? What pickup was he using? Hmm. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that, where it's not about the line or the brilliant solo. It's about what does it, what sounds right? And Boz is such a great songwriter and, and access to great songwriters. Yeah. I always liked he and Bobby Caldwell's collaborations. Yeah. Yeah. That Heart of Mind song. It's oh, beautiful. yeah. Beautiful. I worked with Bobby a little bit. I loved the, that music. Yeah. I met Boz. Does he own or have part ownership in Slim's? Yes. I don't know if it's still ongoing, but it may be. When I was with Curtis Mayfield, cool. we played Slim's right after the big earthquake. Wow. And Boz is sitting there giving us, now, if there's an aftershock, here's what you do. And it was just funny having him walk us through the, you know, the whole scenario. Wow. When I was working with Bette Midler, Boz's brother, Mark, was the guitar tech. Mm -hmm. And he looks just like him, you know what I mean? And so it'd be weird. You'd be finishing this song and handing it off. And there's, it looks like Boz Skaggs is handing you this banjo <laughs> to play. And that was a good link to help me into working for Boz. What was your first high-profile gig, and how did it come about? I was born in South Dakota, and it became very apparent that if you really wanted to try to do this music thing, the first thing you had to do is get out of South Dakota. And go to North Dakota. <laughs> and my brother had been, was a, you know, really great jazz bassist, and he said, you should, you know, since the, the schools you could get into back there, the music department was really not what I needed to work on. And I knew that. And he said, since you know what you want to do, 
you should move to a city and find a teacher and just open your, you know. Right. So I moved to Colorado and there was a thriving music scene going on in Boulder. Tommy Boland mm. from various items, Jan Hammer and Billy oh, yeah. <laughs> and his own stuff. Unfortunately for me, he was my local competition. <laughs> Which was, you know, kind of frustrating because here's this guy who looks like a rock star and he plays great and he sounds great yeah. and everybody loves him. And then there's you. <laughs> but he was, you know, I played with him a little bit. I was playing mostly bass at the time. And so through some people he knew and, and the drummer, Bobby Berkey, was from Dakota as well. He was a friend of my brother's. And uh, I started running into people. I took a lesson with a guy who turned out to be Bill Frizzell's teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bill and I met in the waiting room and exchanged numbers. And we used to get together and play for, you know, you'd sit down and start playing a song and start chasing each other around in the song, going at other songs and look up and like five hours had gone by. We Hmm. just like, we would just go in and uh, just, you know, bounce off things. And then I met uh, Larry Coriel there and played a couple gigs like with Larry. Hmm. Eventually came to California. The first tour I did was a guy named Sean Phillips. Yeah. Was uh, uh, on AM. I actually got the referral because Robin Ford, yeah. who was moving to Boulder as I was moving to California, we met and he, he came to us something I was playing and we hung out and played. And he said, Hey, you're going to California. Call my friend Max Bennett. Oh, yeah. Who was the bass player for, you know, Jody Mitchell and George Harrison later and all that. Just, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I auditioned for uh, LA Express. There was nothing going on at the moment. And Max sent me over to an audition for this guy, Sean Phillips. Mm. And got it. And suddenly I'm like, you know, I thought, well, I'm making more money than I've ever made before. I guess it's going to be smooth sailing. From now on. <laughs> and, you know, promptly didn't save any money. And right. But that was the first time I ever did a, you know, like a national tour with uh, established artist. And then later, through the keyboard player with Sean, I ended up getting to play with a group called Brand X. Yeah. That was uh, Phil Collins's fusion prog rock instrumental band. We toured Europe and toured the U.S. for about, that lasted about seven months. The guitar player was incapacitated to play for a while. And I was able to go in and play this music. And uh, it was just great, you know, for about eight months. Mm. And then other things started coming up shortly after that. I did a couple auditions for uh, Gino through my friend Mark Cranny, who was also a Dakota guy, great drummer, mm. who worked with Jean Ponty for many years. And he, right, did, yeah. he did Brother to Brother. I did a few auditions and eventually got hired. Just so people know, we're talking about Gino Vanelli. Gino Vanelli, yeah. yeah. And was able to work with Gino uh, and his brother Joe for... About 11 years. 40. Wow. Didn't play any live gigs for 10 years or something. <laughs> Frustrating. But yeah. But I learned a lot from playing with these guys. Yeah, I bet. You know, you, you especially I would I would think some of your ideas compositionally could have grown out of some of that. There's some ballads that we did that are just just drop dead gorgeous, you know, yeah. really, really gorgeous. And and then uh, some very driving, you know, aggressive stuff. So it was it was a learning experience all around about control. Yeah. Like how do I rein in my bull in a china shop <laughs> and focus and like I was saying about what's what does this song need? Yeah. Range wise, where I play it. Do you remember what you did five times ago, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> After a while, I did. Yeah. That's one of the things that makes you a great studio call. 
because you fit with the music and not try to fit yourself into the music. I try to. I try to like think about like what's appropriate for this. Yeah, you kind of have to surrender to 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 what you're working with. Yeah, and it's a different kind of a challenge. You know, it's like I don't really think of it as, as like giving leaving something behind, but as much as like yeah, a challenge of what is why. You know, I used to think about it in like, okay, country Western music. It's like even, you know, types of music I wasn't really crazy about at the time. I would listen to these country things and I try all this stuff and it doesn't seem to work. Why does it sound so good when you go boom, tick-a boom, tick-a boom, boom? Because it does. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so apparent that yeah. you, you can you can bluff yourself all you want, but that works. Yeah. And I used to try to figure out why. Why does that work? Because it does. <laughs> So I, I have to ask you, how did your association with Chick Corea come about? I kept running into Chick, like for years. When I first moved to Colorado, the first week I was there, Chick was there with the Bill Connors version of Return to Forever. Great version. For a week. And I was there every night, met Bill, met Chick and the band and the manager. And uh, half the band came up to our house in the mountains and we jammed. Wow. I was there, like I said, I was there every night and met Chick and kind of knew him and a little, not, you know, in passing. And then later when I went to California, I was working with a trumpet player named Alan Vizzuti. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who was on Secret Agent album. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and super accurate, just like, you know, like a sniper, you know. Just like, yeah. And he had, I, I had one of his solo records, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. I might be on it. And he had the same manager. He had been working with Chick and he had the same manager and Chick shows up at the gate and sits in. Oh. And then we're doing the recording at Chick's studio and Chick shows up and ends up playing on the recording. And then later I was touring with Abraham Laboriel's group, Koinonia, in Europe somewhere, who was opening the show. It's Chick with the acoustic trio. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just kept running into him. Yeah. And I would drop the hints, you know, and I auditioned for the first electric band, came in second, which is like, if you have that and a nickel, you could get a cup of coffee. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There's no consolation. Yeah. Price. And then they were very successful and went, you know, and yeah. uh, kicked ass. And then at some point it came back around that he was looking for a guitar player and I auditioned and ended up getting it. Yeah. That's what the paint the world. Yeah, paint the world, and we played all over the world for you know a couple of few years. It was great. Yeah, but like your experience with Chick of like, what do I play for this guy? I had that <laughs> in spades because I was I'd been listening to that music since I was living at home. Yeah, and uh, you know you're up there and you're playing this song and you're trading fours and you and here comes that guy, <laughs> exactly with a keyboard. <laughs> around his neck and a weird grin and like <laughs> oh my god it's like being you know mike tyson's sparring partner or something <laughs> you know you're gonna get beat but you know you're gonna take the beating anyway yeah, and you're gonna learn and you're, you're gonna learn from it yeah i met him during the romantic warrior tour where he was not very happy with the band at the time he wanted something different he was a moving target you look at the stuff he that guy put out i mean it, He'd go, he'd go tour with, I saw this kind of like up close at one point we were out and he was like, he had just finished doing a Gary Burton and himself duo tour. And we were out and he was like, had mentioned to the engineer that, you know, I'd like to do like a kind of a string octet album. And six months later, 
he was doing that. And then he would go, we would be out on the road and he would fly off to do some solo concert, mm -hmm. come back in. And then he, Bobby McFerrin, yo-yo, you know, just like yeah. a, like a, a waterfall and he loved all kinds of music you know some of the stuff is very lyrical like the uh, you know the legs is a feather album and and then there'd be very angular things like i remember one time it was kind of a joke going around the the bus about some interviewer heard ask him you know he's talking about all this music he'd done he, and the interview is why circle remember <laughs> <laughs> circle yeah with like uh braxton anthony braxton right. really out and angular yeah. Because he's got a lot of sides, you know, yeah. he's, he's actually interested. He's not trying to pull a fast one. Right. He's actually got this stuff going on. Yeah. I was really digging towards the end for him. He was doing these live streams on YouTube mm -hmm. of his practicing. You know, you really got a good insight to his process of how he looked at things. And, and that's very, uh, you know, inspiring that somebody would be that revealing. Yeah. They would actually show you specifically what yeah. they're doing instead of this is my secret right yeah this is my secret sauce secret weapon <laughs> another one of my heroes that you worked with was quincy jones i got to do about a week and a half with quincy we we're doing actually library music for his uh, his own he had he has an offshoot i think it's extreme music and he had kenny Barron playing oh, piano yeah it was like this jazz thing and we just played little pieces, but the most, it was, you know, it was really cool to, you, first of all, you take a break and you go in the control room and there's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, whoa, do you know who you are? <laughs> yeah. I imagine that, that has to be in itself just has to be, that, that's enough. I don't even need to play. <laughs> I know. What am How did they get, how did they get in here? <laughs> Yeah, the first time I met Curtis Mayfield, we were at his studio, and I was introduced to him, and somebody, you know, the guy told him, well, he, play, he plays piano. So right away, Curtis was like, you know, well, come on, and we're going we're gonna to record. And I'm like, okay. Uh -huh. So we go over this song, we do it, and we cut it, and it's a couple of takes. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, he goes, let me go out and put a scratch vocal on it. And he walks out in the room there and he starts singing. And all of a sudden I'm like, that's Curtis Mayfield. Right, right. You know, because there's that voice. Before I was just talking to this guy. Right. Uh, and now I'm hearing that voice come out and I'm like, whoa. Right. Yeah, uh, that, that's an that's a interesting, uh, you know, feeling. You know, I have a tendency towards like the hero worship yeah. being intimidated by people. And I've been, you know, and because I'm from this little town in Dakota that kind of considers if you're any good, you don't live here. <laughs> you're out there doing, you know what I mean? So I'm in there and I'm doing a session for um, Marilyn Scott, great singer out here. Great, great singer. I've known forever. She's on your, on your record as well. Yeah. She, yeah. She yeah. And the band is like Vinnie Cagliuta, Bromberg, Brian Bromberg is playing uh, bass. You know, I think Russ Ferrante played some keyboards. You seem to gravitate towards all the slouches. It's horrible, horrible. I feel for you. And and we're doing a George Duke studio. Uh, well, so George is in the control room, who I'm also like, you know, I'm such a Zappa. Yeah. I've been listening to Frank since I was a kid. At one point, George is going to show somebody a part and he comes out and he sits down at his roads and he starts playing. And I go like, 
oh my god that's <laughs> roads on bloody uh you know 200 motels yeah <laughs> and he's got that sound like all yeah. great keyboard players they got like it it's like when you hear zawinul on the early yes. report and the roads is snarling away just <laughs> from his touch you know yeah and so I'm like freaking out that that's George Duke over there. And then uh -huh. I start thinking to myself, you know, they actually called you because they need a guitar player. Uh -huh. They don't really need a super fan in here. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not going to help. You know, you got called because you can do the job. So put that aside. And I had to like physically just put it aside because I'll get all wrapped it up, up in it and it doesn't help it. No, because then then you start getting anxious about what you're playing and you're thinking, do they, are they digging this? Am I, you know, you go down that wormhole and it's like, dude, you're, you're here to play. You're here to play guitar. Just just let be the, do that. But it's, it can be really intimidating to hit your guy like that. You know? Yeah, well, George Duke, I, I always say literally he played with everybody from A to Z, Cannonball Adderley to Frank Zappa. Yeah. And everybody in between. Later on, I got to do a, uh, some gigs with, with George, and it was like just as, you know, intimidating as you can imagine, you know, with Stanley sometimes, with Al Giroux, with a lot of different people. And it was like, George is like, yeah, he could do, he could do anything. Yeah. He was very non, you know, not, not a big shot when it came yeah. to that. He, he knew what he, what he could do, but he was not going to pull big shot stuff on you. I originally met him, I was auditioning for, um, he did, had a group with uh, Alfonso Johnson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Billy Cobb, was at the Billy Cobb and George Duke? Yeah, and um, later met Schofield, who yeah. was playing with that group, and and it was just like, yeah, like a chameleon, a real, yeah, not even a chameleon, he just knew what to do. Yeah, George was just one of my all-time favorites, because he played, he produced, it, there wasn't any there wasn't anything in music that he didn't do sang like a bird oh you know? yeah yeah those, those solo records like feel mm -hmm. oh, yeah. oh my god just gorgeous you know really really very musical and yeah and it, it always blows my mind that somebody can be so comfortable completely yeah. comfortable in all these different worlds you know yeah i remember one time a great lesson with chick he'd be doing this stuff live and he would do a little piano improv into the song that was in F. And the improvs were completely different every night. I mean, complete, one night it'd be like Debussy, you know, and the next night it would be like Bella Bartok pissed off with a hangover, you know? It was just, like, it was just completely different. And so I asked him, like, where do you get this completely different thing every night? And he said, well, sometimes I just put my hands down on the keyboard without looking and go from there. Mm. thought holy camoli i mean that you're that comfortable in the harmonic world that you can just take whatever you're whatever you happen to go to and you can work from there yeah it's it was you know, it was like like revealing some golden secret yeah that only he's going to get anyway another great lesson was that he would like he had an attitude about if you have a weak spot in your plane don't avoid it attack it Mm. But go straight for it and you can actually do something about it otherwise if you go the other way and avoid it you're going to be avoiding that for the rest of your life yeah it was really a great lesson because he pushed himself so he pushed the band hard but he pushed himself way harder than wow we used to do these improvs that you know he enjoyed enough to continue doing them just me and him 
and we would just kind of have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, you know, one of the, the real keys of doing these things is knowing when to stop because you'd have these great like yeah. exchanges and here's this gem of a moment. And that's when you're sp supposed to stop. And if you keep going, it turns into this kind of meander, maybe meander or get loose. He had a very keen sense of composition hmm. in his improvisation. Which is spontaneous composition anyway. Right, right. On your record, tell people some of the artists that you have riding shotgun with you, so to speak. I've got Gary Novak and Jimmy Earl, who were the rhythm section when I was working with Chick. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Babco is playing keyboards on those those tunes. I've been playing for many years with Jimmy Johnson and Chad Wackerman. They're on a couple tunes. I did some things at home. My brother Terry Miller up in the Bay Area is playing mm -hmm. on a few songs. And Tom Brechtline was playing on some things. And then yeah. one song I sent off to my friend Mike Shapiro, just thinking, do you like this at all? Like, and he says, I love this thing. Can I produce it? Mm -hmm. And so I said, of course. So he mm. came back a month later with this gorgeous track that he had put together in the Philippines. And he'd got his friends, his little, his team of Philippines musicians to play on it. And he put keys and all these vocals and, and he got Ayrto to play on it. I yeah. was just like, uh, you know, kind of beside myself because he was, when I moved to Colorado, the first week was Chicory and the second week was Ayrto. Mm. And it was just unreal. The guy's just dripping music. I have to say about Ayrto, he's a big hero of mine. He was present for so much of the music that drew me into playing in the first place. Bitches Brew, for God's sake. Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, the first yeah. Return to Forever album, the first Weather Report album. Yeah. The John McLaughlin album, My Goals Beyond. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's playing all that great guitar stuff. Keith Jarrett, Expectations, all this stuff that drew me in. Like he was there. So to have him playing on the record is such a, just a huge honor. Then Jimmy Haslip, who actually was totally responsible for this album even happening with Blue Canoe Records. He like, he shepherded this into existence. He's playing on a tune. My old friends, Walt Fowler and Brandon Fields are playing horns, trumpet and saxophone on basically just about everything on the album. Scott Kinsey is playing a little bit of keyboards. I love Scott's music. And I think I mentioned pretty much everybody else. Yeah, it's great. It's really a great and amazing group of players that I owe. Have you, have you had a previous solo albums? I put out some albums on my own years ago. I had a, we had a trio. We were working at uh, what became Musicians Institute. Mm -hmm. Ralph Humphrey from early Zappa hot rats and all this great stuff, Frank. Right. Yeah. And Jim Lacefield and I had a class and they were going to do a label. They were going to start a label and they had the record plant truck there and we recorded a couple of days and then they changed their mind about doing the label and we had the masters and we put that out. That's a group called the outside men. You can find it, but there was no label. And then I put a couple solo things in the next few years, one called Save the Moon and another one called A World Goes Round. So I put some things out. Those are my things with my own compositions on it. Most. So this is like your first label label kind of. This is the one first one that I'm not don't have in the back of my car as much. <laughs> yeah. Which is really not nice. And it wouldn't have happened without Jimmy Haslip. Yeah. What's one of your craziest road stories? I know we all have them. 
and I know putting you on the spot about it could be. No, like, no, it's it's. I'm I'm going through my uh, you know memory bank. Yes, because you. I had a great moment without with Chick. We were on the road and we're in a you know tour bus on the way somewhere, and he he had started playing chess with everyone mm -hmm. and was cleaning everybody's clock, as you can imagine. <laughs> so it was my turn, and I was had I played some as a kid, but when we start playing. And he's killing me. He's taking all my main pieces. You know, mm -hmm. I'm left with like a knight and the king and, and some pawns or something. <laughs> and he's just moving in for the kill in a very short amount of time. And I looked at the board and I went, oh, my God, he overlooked something. He's killing me so badly. He had overlooked where I had just moved a bishop into place. And it was like checkmate. <laughs> and he stared at the board <laughs> for a minute and then looked up and went, wow. Let's play again. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to play for a while. I need to have, let me have this for a day, will you? And then one time, I remember one time with, with uh, playing with uh, Natalie Cole, mm -hmm. which was really fun because I'd never done any big band stuff. And it was all about, you know, what do you do with that music to make it sound right? The guitarist has a role, you know, yes. so I learned a lot there too. That Middler wasn't a big band situation? It was a large band. I used to call it the world's widest band because <laughs> it, was, it was about 70 feet to the guy. To, oh, oh to Jesus. The on the other side. <laughs> I got a good story for them, too. All right. Back to Natalie. Natalie Cole, we're playing at some theater out east and, you know, getting ready to go on. And there's somebody opening and we're, we hear that over the and we're looking around up in this dressing room. It hadn't been used for a while or something. And I see there's something up there moving. And I look up and it's a little bat. There's a bat <laughs> who's up there tucked in the corner trying to be, you know, invisible. <laughs> and I started talking to the band members and I said, you know, if we could get Natalie to take that bat out on stage and bite its head off, we can open her up. We can open up a whole new audience. Absolutely. Natalie music, which didn't go anywhere. Got no traction. Zero. Then, the, of course, the, the Bet Midler story. There was this hilarious guitar tech. Oh, it's a kind of a long story, but it's a good one. Go for it. Yeah, we like good stories. Okay. There were four horn players and very elaborate. That show was like a traveling circus. You know, it was like dancing and gigantic props and 17 gorgeous dancer girls, you know. And mm. so... One of the horn players was doing the opening number and he would hand his um, sax off and be handed a clarinet to finish the piece. Mm -hmm. and he was kind of, you know, on the roadies. He was like, you know, be careful with this saxophone. It's very expensive. Right. And they're like, we're, we're pros. We know about that. We know. And he did it a few times, which started yeah. annoyed them a little bit. <laughs> and so the guy who did it, who does the handing off, Showed up a few days later, limping a bit. He said, hey, you okay? He says, well, I hurt my leg. I don't know what it is, you know. And then a few more days go by and he shows up and he's got like a, you know, like an elastic bandage on his knee. And we're like, wow, what happened? He says, well, it's not really getting better. You know, it's this thing. And, and then on the final one of the last gigs, he shows up and he's on crutches. Like, wow, you really are suffering. And he was, you know, Oscar worthy performance because in reality he's fine. Yeah. yeah. What he's done is he went out to a pawn shop and he bought an old clarinet 
and he sawed it into about 10 pieces and then barely glued it back together. Oh. And, and we're doing the sound check. And the guy goes back to hand off the, the uh, you know, he's doing the dance number. And he goes to hand off the saxophone. And our friend goes with the clarinet to hand it to him and, and just goes, whoa, and falls down into his crutches. And the clarinet hits the stage and scatters into about 10 pieces skittering across the stage. And the guy's face just dropped like, <laughs> you broke my expensive clarinet. And it, somewhere I have it on video, but it was like, the, it, so it went on for a bit, about a period of three weeks. It was really awesome. That he built up to that. He built up to it, you know, faking this guy out. Yeah, no, it was, you know, at the end of a tour, there was always pranks, you know, end of tour yes. pranks. Yes. Yeah. One night, I think we were playing, our last night was at the uh, Town and Country in London. And, you know, we used to come out on stage and we'd do this kind of fanfare to bring Curtis out. You know, this is the early 80s, so I have a lot of keyboards. So I'm over here, I'm playing on one keyboard, and I come over here to play the, the main piano, and the keys won't go down. I'm like, what the? I, no matter what, they had stuck some kind of bar in, <laughs> inside so that I could not move the keys. Uh-huh, yeah. And, you know, everybody had a great laugh. Yeah, uh-huh. Except, you know, yeah, except the crew, me. <laughs> the, crew, the crew loves that stuff. Yes. We were closing a, a Midler tour. Like I said, I used to have to play the banjo on some of these like long comedy numbers because, you know, I could insert the most inappropriate song on the banjo. <laughs> the more beautiful the piece, the more horrible it sounds on the banjo. Like Claire de Lune on a banjo. Oh, nice. It's dumb. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> so we get to this point and they hand me this banjo that they strung backwards. Oh. <laughs> but luckily, because it's, in fifths instead of fourths, all the chord positions were reversed. They're like a mirror image. Yeah, the chord yeah, yeah. positions. And I was, I looked at it for a minute, and then somehow the part was simple enough that I was able to flip the chord over and play the song. Oh wow! In, with an upside down strung <laughs> banjo, I think I got a lot of points that day. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I've really enjoyed uh, meeting you and hanging out with you a little bit. You too, Buzz. Very funny. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to put the word out. Absolutely. Yeah, I usually close the podcast out with one of your songs. What would you like to? Oh, yeah. Well, how about um, Colvin? Yeah, I can do that. We played it live the other day. And there's a lot of uh, I have a lot of uh, some of this stuff I play with a looper. And there's some choreography for <laughs> me to play this live. And it's, okay. it's good. Well, it's good. A challenge. Yeah. So we'll close out with Colvin and make sure you pick up the album it's available and you know all your digital favorites you know wherever you get and do you have physical cds as well i have physical cds too i have a website mikemillerguitars.com i've got physical cds there there's also at the label blue canoe blue canoe records.com and made some physical ones because yes you can actually hold it you can hold it there's art artwork and the whole bit yeah while you're you're breaking up again we're gonna we're gonna that'll be a good time to uh sign out and thanks again for joining me and i look forward to speaking with you again in the future thanks bus thank you thank you people